for the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit would come, and, and they waited, and the Spirit did come at Pentecost, and we have looked at how God worked miraculously through the Spirit, how many heard the gospel proclaimed in their own native tongue and responded, and then last week we looked at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and today we pick up in verse 42 where we see in just a few verses the snapshot of what the New Testament church looked like, the early church, we see before us in these few verses what our church today is called to look like and called to be. And I pray God will use it in our lives today. So uh, if you are able to stand out of reverence for God's Word, if you would stand with us as I read it for us today. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is what the holy inspired Word of God says to us. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. If you would, pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray, God, that you might work in such a way in our church, through our church, that that day by day we would see people saved as well. That we might see today as we study this Word, the grace of Your Gospel and how it works in our lives. That You bless this time we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, perhaps you have seen as I have how on occasion you'll have someone who will who will set out to, to break a record, to do something that no one's ever done before. I'm always fascinated as I watch those who, who, who go to great lengths, who, who expend their bodies of every ounce of energy they have, who train for months, years, some even decades, in order to do something no one's ever done. And this isn't something that just happens in our day, it's something that's been going on for years. In fact, just over... About 60 years ago, uh, there was a young woman named Florence Chadwick. Uh, She was setting out to become the first woman to swim from Catalina Island, there off the coast of California, to the California coast, uh, between 25 and 30 miles in distance. Uh, Florence had swam many distances like this before. Uh, She had broken many records. She had been the first to do a number of things. She was the first woman, for example, to swim across the English Channel in both directions. And so, as she set out to to this new challenge, uh, she was ready for it. She had prepared for it. She had trained for it. But there were elements that day that were not in her control. It was an early July morning, July 4th, 1952. and, And one of the elements was how frigid the water was. She had prepared for that. One of the elements, one of the dangers was an infestation of sharks in that area. 
And so boats would go on either side of Florence as she swam. And on the boats there were people with rifles and they were shooting into the water as she would swim in order to scare the sharks away. I think for most of us that would be enough to push us back into the boat. But not for Florence. She continued to swim. In fact, she swam for some 15 hours before she encountered her next obstacle. And this was an obstacle she couldn't overcome. That morning in July, there was a thick fog. And as she swam, the fog got thicker. And about 15 hours into her swim, the fog was so thick that they say you could only see about one to two feet in front of you. And so as Florence swam, she got disoriented. At times she would start swimming in the completely wrong direction and her coaches and people in the boats when they discovered this for they couldn't see well either they would shout to her and call to her to get her to turn around and swim the right way. This went on for another hour and eventually she couldn't take it anymore and she had to get into the boat and out of the water. And once she did that soon after the fog lifted and there she saw she was only about 30 minutes away from that California coast she was swimming towards. Later on in an interview, Florence was asked about what had happened, what had kept her from reaching her goal, and this is what she said. It wasn't the fact that I was cold, or that I was afraid of the sharks, or that I was exhausted. The problem was I couldn't see my goal. It was clouded by the fog. And when I've read that story and thought about it, and thought about how it applies to the church today, I've thought about how so often in the church, we can't see our destination. We can't see where we're headed towards because there's a fog there. For many of us, that fog represents the confusion in the church today as to what the church is even supposed to do. In fact, if I were to ask you today and go around this room and ask each person, well, what's the purpose of the church? What's the mission of the church? I'd probably get a lot of different answers. I'd get some folks who'd simply say, and be honest, I'm not sure what it is. See, we have a fog that's kind of settled in on the life of the church today, and we're not really sure what we're supposed to be doing. We're not really sure which direction we're supposed to be heading. And that's not the case at all with the church we've read about this morning in the book of Acts. And so my hope is, is that we stu- as we study this book, our goal, our purpose, our mission will become clearer to us. Because I fear that in the midst of the fog, there are many of us who have already gotten out of the water and gotten into the boat and given up. There are some of us who are tired, who are worn out, who aren't sure that we want to really persevere through what God has called the church to do in today's day and age. And so my hope is is that God will make, through the power of His Spirit, clear to you and I today, what is it He has called the church to be? Because the fog hasn't always been there. We see here in the early church, in the establishment of Christ's church, a very clear picture of the church. And I think by looking at this picture, by studying this picture, you and I can get a better idea of what it is we're called to do today. Beginning with the first point there in your notes, we see in the early church that the church was devoted to biblical teaching. 
We talked about this last week when we looked at Peter's sermon and talked about what a biblical sermon it was. And I noted then that, well, well, that might seem a little odd to say. I mean, it's a sermon, so of course it would be biblical. And yet, when you look at our world today and look at the church today, and so many pulpits this Lord's Day, there are sermons preached that aren't very biblical at all. There are sermons preached that say very little of what God's Word says. There are sermons preached that completely avoid the notion, the need for repentance, that avoid words like hell and sin and judgment. Sermons that basically boil them down and they are simply self-help lessons. And yet what we see in the early church were biblical sermons preached by men who studied the Scripture. We see here this gathering of early believers foundationally was focused on the Scripture. And this is what we've seen throughout the book of Acts so far. Think about what we saw in Acts 1. In Acts 1, at the very beginning of the book, as Luke records it for us, you have a picture there of the early church. You have a picture there of Jesus, after the resurrection, spending 40 days with the disciples. And do you remember what He did? The Scripture says He taught them about the kingdom of God. Chances are that that teaching was very similar to the teaching he offered the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that teaching we know specifically that Jesus with them went through the Old Testament prophets and helped them to understand how everything in the Old Testament pointed to the gospel and the cross and helped them to understand the resurrection. He then told them to wait that the Holy Spirit would come, that the Spirit, he had said before, would teach them. And so as they waited... Do you remember what they did? They spent time talking about the Scripture. In fact, it was Peter who stood up as they were waiting and reminded them of what the Scripture taught in relation to the disciples. He's the one that reminded them that someone needed to replace Judas. And that's when they had that discussion and prayed and God led them to choose Matthias. Then in Acts chapter 2, When we saw that that miraculous event of Pentecost, you remember as the Spirit came, they began to speak in languages known to those from people all over the world. And what were they hearing? They were hearing about the mighty acts of God. And as they heard those things, Peter got up and preached. And what did he preach? The Scripture. He preached from Joel. He preached from the Psalms. We see the early church in these first two chapters represents what we see of the early church throughout the New Testament. It was focused on the Word of God. And friends, we need to be focused on the Word of God as well. And let me say to you as your pastor, it is very easy not to be. We live in a day and age of the church when every day we're bombarded in the church with with new ideas and and new books and new programs and, and new ways to reach out to people. If you'll just do this, if you'll follow these steps, if you put on these events, if you'll do these things, then that'll draw people in. And so often those things simply come down to the next gimmick. So often they're not rooted in the Word of God. So often what we're doing is we're trying to entertain people to get them into the church. And then we have to keep them with what we win them with. And sadly, that's not the Word of God so often. The Scripture gives us a different picture. The Scripture commands us as believers to gather together fundamentally to study and share God's Word together. While Paul writes to the Colossians, Colossians 3.16, 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The picture of the early church there is they were actually admonishing one another, correcting one another. Now you think about that in the life of the church. How do we respond in the church today when someone admonishes us, when someone corrects us? How do we respond in our culture today when that happens? Well, well, who are you to say this to me? Well, that's your interpretation. Mine is different. The Scripture says that God's Word is to be the foundation, the focus of our fellowship with one another. And it is to be what speaks into our lives. And we as believers then should be able to go to another believer and say, Listen, I'm scared for you because God's Word says this and you're doing this and you really need to come back. You need to return. You need to repent. But if we try to do that apart from a faithfulness to the Word of God, we will fail. We have this picture in the Scripture that we're to be so rooted in the Scripture that that it then causes great growth in our lives. It's that picture we see in Psalm 1. That the blessed man, he he meditates on the books of the law day and night. And you remember what that looks like? It says he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. You go along a stream, you go along a creek, you go along a body of water, and what do you see? You see flourishing trees all around it. Why? Because that's the source. They're right there by it. That's what they need to grow. God says we need His Word to grow. And so I encourage you, regardless of where you are today, to to move forward, to move further in your dedication, your devotion to the Word of God. If you never pick up the Bible, if this is the only time you hear the Scripture, I would encourage you to open it up and pick it up daily. If you don't have any habit of reading it, then start with reading a verse. If you're reading a verse, then read a few verses. If you're reading a few, then move on to reading a chapter and then start working your way through books of the Bible. I would encourage all of you, if you need a place to start, start in the book of Acts. One of the great things about preaching through the book of Acts is you know exactly what we're going to be talking about next week. We're in Acts chapter 2 today at the end of it. So guess where we're going to be next week? Y'all aren't good guessers. (laughs) Acts chapter 3. I'm only going to do the first 10 verses. If you read a verse and a half a day, you'll be ahead of how much I'll do next week. The goal is just to start somewhere and to read the Word of God. Because it is what changes lives through the power of God's Spirit. We see point two that the early church not only was devoted to the Word of God, to biblical teaching, they were committed to Christian fellowship. The scripture here says that that they gathered together for the apostles' teaching and for fellowship. Now when we hear the word fellowship, we think about something a bit different than what the scripture is speaking of when it says fellowship. When we talk about fellowship in the church, we typically think about a place, the the fellowship hall. Well, what do we normally do in a fellowship hall in a church? We, We eat. God bless it. I love eating. I like that kind of fellowship. But that's not all that there is to fellowship. When we think about fellowship, we think about, okay, we're going to gather together at an appointed time for an appointed purpose, and we're going to share a meal together, and we're going to spend time together. And believers need to do those things. But there's more 
to biblical Christian fellowship than simply gathering and eating. In fact, the Greek word used here is koinonia. That word koinonia means common and shared. So, for example, the the New Testament is written in Greek. We refer to it as koine Greek, common Greek. It means that was the Greek that was common in that day, that was shared in that day, that people spoke to one another in that day. That's what the word means. And what it means when you apply it to this concept of fellowship is it means that we are coming together, we are sharing together, we are meeting the needs of one another together. So when you see this word used so often, it's connected to one group of Christians or a Christian meeting the group, the needs of another group of Christians or a Christian. It's the word used, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's writing in part to share with them about what he's seeing happen in the Macedonian churches. And what he says about the Macedonian churches is he says, okay, I need you guys to know this. These guys are extremely poor. I mean, they're not poverty level poor. They're way under poverty level poor. They don't have anything to do anything with. We need to be helping them. And yet, what does Paul say about them? He says, in their extreme poverty, they are begging me to help other people who have needs greater than them. And the word he uses to describe that is this. He says the Macedonian churches, in their poverty, they are begging me to have fellowship with others. To take part in helping the needs of others. The word there helps us to get clarity that fellowship means a lot more than what we think of today. Fellowship means a lot more than gathering together and eating as much as we enjoy those things. Fellowship means we come together and we have things in common. We share things. The scripture here gives us a picture of that in the church of Acts. When it says they had all things in common. Now we need to look at this because we can misunderstand this. There are some who've looked at this text before and said, well that's, that's communism is what that is. It's not communism. Communism is a structure where there's no private property, there's no private ownership. The masses are forced to live at a common level. There's no generosity in communism. There's no spirit-led giving in communism. There's no koinonia fellowship in communism. This also is not socialism. Socialism is a structure where you can have private ownership, but if someone has an abundance more and someone has less, then the one with more is forced to give up that more they have so that they can give it to the one with less so they can be brought up. So again, they can be at this common level. But that's not what's happening here in the book of Acts either. What we see happening in the book of Acts is what is described in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. So so this is a picture of the early church. As they're gathering together, someone would notice a need in this family's life. And they would look at what God had blessed them with and they would say, you know what, I I need to help that person. God is calling me to help that person so they would help that person. And another would see this need and they would look to meet that need. And you had a church, a gathering of believers who were helping to meet one another's needs. And here's what we see about that with fellowship. 
Here's the difference between biblical Christian fellowship in the early church and what we so often call fellowship today. Biblical fellowship cost us something. Biblical fellowship requires sacrifice from us. What we think of fellowship is normally getting something. (laughs) I'm going to go get fed at this fellowship meal. I'm going to go spend time with these people. But the scripture says, no, fellowship is something more than that. Fellowship is when believers give, sacrifice, are generous to one another, and they share that, and it's common, and they're together. And the reason we're able to do that, the foundation of that is the very gospel itself. The scripture tells us we can have fellowship with one another. We can live sacrificially for others. Why? Because we have been brought into fellowship with God. How does that happen? We're brought into fellowship with God through the gospel of Jesus. Where God sacrifices, God gives His one and only Son who dies in our place on the cross. Think about that picture of fellowship. We have fellowship with God. Why? Because while we were still yet sinners, the Scripture says, Christ died in our place. This wonderful, beautiful exchange takes place in the Gospel. Jesus goes to the cross and dies a death that He does not deserve, but that we do. And in return, we receive righteousness from Him that we don't deserve, but He graciously gives to us. We are able to have fellowship with God because God gives sacrificially and graciously to us. And then the Scripture calls us to live that same way with one another, to have fellowship with one another. And so biblical fellowship is not keeping a list of who's done something for us or done something against us and trying to make sure everything's even in the end. Biblical fellowship is not, well... This person gave me this, so I've got to make sure I give them this back so it'll all break even. And this person never gave me anything, so I'm not going to give them anything. Biblical fellowship is when we live sacrificially, generously, and give graciously to those in our church body. And so I would encourage you, look around. Look around at needs that are around us. So often in the church, we're not real good about saying what it is we need. We're not real good about sharing our burdens with others. But if we look, if we pray, if we seek, we'll see some needs out there. And I believe all of us are called then as the church to have fellowship with one another, to encourage one another, to meet those needs as best we can. And you might think, well, you know, things are kind of tight. I'm not real sure I'm one of those with an abundance. Certainly there's those, you know, God's God's blessed and given so much to, they need to meet those needs. Remember the believers in Macedonia... (laughs) They were the ones who were extremely poor. And yet Paul noted they were the ones who gave graciously. He's not called us to give out of our surplus. He's called us to give out of whatever it is that He's blessed us with in our lives. We see that in the early church. We also see point three. The early church gathered to worship. They gathered together for worship. And notice the settings that are mentioned here in the Scripture. Verse 46 Day by day, they were attending the temple together. What did they do? They they broke bread together in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God and having favor with all people. We've already read in verse 42, they were spending time devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowshipping, breaking bread, and praying together. 
Notice the Scripture here tells us they, they did that in two different settings. There's one that's more of a large corporate setting. They attended the temple together. This was likely a reference to the courtyard of the Gentiles there in Jerusalem. This was an area that during feasts and festivals, people would crowd into. And historians tell us that the courtyard of the Gentiles could hold about 200,000 people. And so you can imagine all those people that would come in Jerusalem at all different times. And as the church was growing and as Pentecost occurred and as thousands were coming to faith and the Lord was adding to their number, day by day those being saved. One of the things you might wonder is where where'd they all go? <laughs> where they all meet? There's no building fun challenge here. That They went to the temple courtyard and there the scripture says they would do what they said here. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They'd have fellowship. The breaking of bread, that's a reference to the Lord's Supper. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. They would share in the Lord's Supper together and they would pray together. But notice it wasn't just in that large environment. The scripture also says they would go and break bread in their homes. They would gather probably with a much smaller group of believers and they'd spend time doing those same things. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching. Praying together. Having the Lord's Supper together. But notice in both those contexts, whether it was at the temple gathering or in their homes, notice what is common. They're together. They're with other believers. And this is the context that we see worship taking place. And that's important for us today. Because you and I have and will encounter those who don't come to the church anymore. They don't come to any church anymore. And they'll tell us all the things wrong with the church. And they'll say things to us like, you know, I, I don't need the church. I'm, I'm doing fine on my own. Talked to one guy not long ago who told me he didn't need to come to the church to worship. He'd just go to his tree stand to worship. And I thought, well, you're worshiping something. I'm not sure it's God. See, we worship all kinds of other things in our lives. All kinds of other things set our agenda and set our schedules. But God has called us to come together and gather together in this setting. And it's not a perfect one. One of the things you've probably heard I've heard is, well, well, I don't want to go to the church. The church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. It is. I've often told people that someone told me long ago, and I've told others since then, when someone says that, when they say, well, I don't go to the church. It's full of a bunch of hypocrites. I'll say to them, well, come on in. There's room for one more. <laughs> you know, we're all hypocrites. But we all say, well, I'm going to do this. And we don't even come, come close to that. We, we say, we're going to sign up for a health club and we're going to go every week. Come February, we're like, why did I sign up for automatic draft? <laughs> we can't even fulfill the goals we make up for ourselves. Much less live to the standard God's called us to on our own. And that's why the beauty of the gospel is God's empowered us through Christ, through the power of the Spirit. To live as He's called us to live. And He's given us a means to do that. The body of Christ. And He's called us to come together. As messed up as we are. As sinful as we are. As hypocritical as we are. This is what God has called us to. And we see the early church committed to that gathering. In the temple courtyards. In the temple. As well as in believers homes. And we see the struggle though. There that we see today. People who say, well, I don't need the church. and giving up on the church. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, don't neglect to meet together. 
as in the, as is in the habit of some. Hebrews 10.25. Because that's our natural inclination to say, well, I'll just do this on my own. <laughs> this is not a new problem in the church. It's been going on for years. I read of one pastor who a century ago... Pastor G. Campbell Morgan, he, he was dealing with this problem in his church and people weren't coming and so he, he went and visited one of his church members. And as he visited him there in his home, that church member went on to tell him about how great he was doing spiritually and how great his walk with the Lord was and said, listen, I, I've come to understand, I don't need the church. The church doesn't need me. I'm doing fine on my own. Pastor thought for a moment about how he could respond to this man who he'd already shared much scripture with and encouraged him to come to the church. And so as they sat there in that, that small room, he noticed the, the heating source, this lump of coals burning brightly was heating the room they were in. And so the pastor simply removed one of those coals and set it to the side by itself. And then he sat there with that church member and they both watched together as all those other coals burned brightly and that one coal lost its fire. But what a picture that is for us, church, of what happens to us when we decide, I don't need the church, I'll just go out there and do it on my own. Now the scripture says, no, the church is to be a body with many parts, and we all need one another. And just as our physical body has many, many members but one body, the church is called to be the same. We need one another. We need to fellowship with one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to come together and share the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of the Gospel. It's a crucial component to the gathering of the church. We're going to celebrate that today. We're going to spend time sharing in the Lord's Supper today. That's what God has called us to do as the church. But before we do that, one last point you see there in your notes. Point four. The early church changed the world. No small task. But the world was forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who followed Him. The world was changed. Our calendars are set by it. We see the mark of the faith around the world today. We see how the early church changed lives. Verse 47 here, Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord did what? He added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so you think about this for a moment. There we have the twelve. And the twelve are struggling at the crucifixion. The twelve are, are running away. But what does the Lord do? After the resurrection, He spends time with them and their numbers grow and He fills them with the Spirit and they begin to preach and people respond. And now there's thousands. The Scripture says at Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved in that one day. And now not only those 3,000, but God is adding to their number. I mentioned last week, it's important for us to think about this. That this 3,000 so easily can just be a little number for us. The day by day can be a number for us. But each one of these numbers had a face. Each one of these numbers had a name. Each one of these numbers had a family. This was a family tree times thousands that were changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were changed because the church looked radically different than the world around them. The question is, do we look radically different from the world around us today? And sadly, the answer is, so often, 
We really don't. You turn on the news in the evening, and you've got all these reasons to fret and be scared and be worried. The world is fearful, and the Christians are fearful too. Whatever the latest trend is out there in the world, the latest thing going on in our culture that the world absorbs and lives according to, so often the Christians do the same. So often when you look at our culture and you look at the church, you see very little recognizable difference. And the differences that have been there in the life of the church for centuries, as we watch, are slowly dwindling away. And the church of Jesus Christ is looking now more than ever like the world around us. There's no reason for the world to change because the church doesn't look any different than the world. But yet Christ has called us to something different. He's called us to live not in fear, but in faith. He's called us to live radically different than a lost and dying world that people might take note of the church, of the believers, and stop and say, there's something different there. I'm not sure what it is, but I need to find out. And then people are drawn to our faith in Christ. That's what's happening here in the early church. And it didn't just stop in the book of Acts. It went on for centuries. In fact, just less than 200 years after Luke wrote the book of Acts, there in Rome, there was a plague that hit Rome that devastated it. The plague, they say historically, took the lives of about 5,000 people a day. It was an epidemic. And it didn't go for a short time. It was a plague that lasted for some 15 years. You can imagine the devastation it would bring. One area of the world, Alexandria, there in Egypt, they say, lost two-thirds of its entire population to this plague. And so the world was fearful. The world was scared. But there was one group of people who, rather than running from this plague, essentially ran to it. There was one group of people who, rather than abandoning the sick and running for them out of fear that they too might die, There was a group who ran towards the sick to show them mercy and grace and compassion and cared for them. Many people during that day and age, as they died, their bodies were literally left out to rot. Their families would not even bury them out of fear that they might catch the disease that killed them. But there was one group of people who would then go to the graveyards and would bury those who had died of this plague. That group was the church. That group was the Christians. That group was the followers of Jesus Christ. And many of them in the process died. Many of them who were well went in harm's way. And in going in harm's way, they too contracted the same disease, the same plague, and they died from it. But they also were able to save many from dying. Why did they do that? They did it fundamentally because they had no fear of death. They knew Jesus And Jesus conquered fear and death. And so as the plague swept through Rome, they kept singing. They weren't scared. Why? Because they knew at death, they would then meet their Savior. They knew the One who conquered sin and death. And as a result, they responded radically different to that plague than anyone around them. You you can probably guess where I'm going with this. (laughs) You turn on the news today, And it's one plague, it's Ebola today. It'll be another one ten years from now, it'll be another one ten years after that. 
You turn on the news and you see, be scared of this, be scared of this, be scared of this. Run in fear of this, run in fear of this. The church of Jesus Christ is called today to do what the church of Jesus Christ did 200 years after Luke wrote Acts. We're called to stand up and say, we're not scared. We have no fear of these things. Because we know the one who has conquered sin and death. But if we live like the world, then basically our testimony is, this world is all there is. And so we've got to live it up and we've got to preserve it and we've got to hold on to all we can. But the Scripture calls us to something different. The Lord's Supper reminds us of something different. When Jesus gathered to have this meal, do you remember the context? Jesus was about to go to the cross and die. And the disciples still weren't getting a clear picture of this, a clear understanding. Jesus had said to them, very specifically, on multiple occasions, going to Jerusalem, going to be crucified, and they're over there saying, "Uh, who's going to be first in the kingdom, Jesus? (laughs) They're not getting it, they're not understanding it, but Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. And do you notice that the Last Supper, what is absent? Do you notice that the Last Supper what we have no recording of. There's no fear. There's no fear at that meal. There's faith. And when we gather around this meal, we're called to the same thing. So many of us live every day of our lives scared to death of something. If it's not this, it's this. And if it's not this, it's this. I joke about how not long ago, I don't even remember the full context, but with one of my kids, we were talking about Something they were scared of, and, and me being brilliant, I tried to say, well, you know, there's, there's a better chance of getting attacked by the bear in our backyard than that. So then they were scared of bears coming and attacking them in the backyard. And we just replaced one fear with another. But the gospel says what? Christian, have no fear. Have faith. This world is not our home. Whether it's Ebola or you eat too many Twinkies, you're going to die. And I am too. That is a certainty for us unless the Lord returns first. And so rather than live in fear every day of our lives of what it will be, what if we were to look radically different and live our lives in light of what Christ has already done? He has defeated sin and death. And He has given us the opportunity. He has called us to the responsibility to stand up to a lost and dying world and say, We know the one who has conquered sin and death. And his name is Jesus. Do you know him? We're the ones who are called to share in this meal together. Which is a symbol. (laughs) It's lunchtime. Nobody's getting full on this little cracker in this little cup. But it is something that's to represent a foretaste of what is to come. A day when we will feast with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. At a banquet table. And we will experience real fellowship at that point. (laughs) When the one who has given all for us gathers there with his people together. And we're to live in light of that day. And so today as we receive the Lord's Supper together, may we receive it as those who not only understand the gospel, but are committed to sharing the gospel with others. May we receive it as those who remember what Christ did on our behalf and his grace towards us that we might go tell a lost and dying world about it. Because while we should have no fear in death, there are many in our culture who should absolutely be terrified at the notion of it. Because the Scripture says to us, for those in Christ, paradise 
in heaven. For those who have yet to repent and put their faith in Christ, they will be under the wrath of God for all of eternity. So maybe be a church that looks different, that lives different, that seeks to go to those who are living under the curse of sin and say there's freedom in the gospel of Jesus. I ask that you remember that as we participate in receiving the Lord's Supper together. I'd like to invite the deacons to come forward as we prepare.